Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. I received an email the other day from a listener who just wanted to encourage me in the work I'm doing with the podcast. And I wanted to make a note of that because I really love getting these emails. It's one of the best parts about doing this work, and I cannot emphasize that enough. So thanks to all of you who have spent a little bit of your time reaching out to me and sharing your thoughts and offering kind words about the podcast. I actually have been doing that more frequently too. I'll read someone's work and send them a quick email thanking them and letting them know how it resonated with me. These small acts of kindness can go a really long way. Whenever you have a minute, feel free to send me an email or tweet. And whenever you have another minute, feel free to tell a colleague about the podcast I think someone tweeted the other day that this podcast has been particularly helpful right now. They mentioned it being like going to a conference panel and hearing people talk about their teaching or chatting in the hallways with their colleagues. Pedagog has hopefully been a source for community and engagement, something I know I'm missing a lot right now. In this episode, I talk with Dev Bose about disability studies, accommodations, ethics and disclosure, and his research on college writers with ADHD and portfolio assessment. Dev Bose is an assistant professor and writing program administrator at the University of Arizona, where he teaches courses in rhetoric, composition, and pedagogy. His research focuses on disability and digital composition, especially privilege and access pertaining to technology and rhetorical conceptions of invisible disabilities. He was twice awarded the Conference on College Composition and Communication Disability in College Composition Travel Award, and is currently working on a second edition of Disability and the Teaching of Writing, a critical source book. Dev, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start by talking about disability studies and accommodations. Can you talk about the challenges students face at the institutional level and in the writing classroom when it comes to accommodations? For reasonable accommodations are essentially just adjustments made in the system after the individual has kind of proven that their request is, is fair. However, accommodations often require expensive medical proof, right? Which draws both a financial burden, but I also argue that that delineates um, privilege um, of sorts in terms so so that's kind of like like the big answer for like university as a whole relatively easier I think for a lot of students to ask for or think of the accommodations that one might need um, in a in a classroom that doesn't like focus on on writing or learning to compose in, um, in written contexts um, as it's like like primary discourse um, or mode of assessment however I think for writing classrooms um, students may not be know necessarily what kind of accommodations to ask for right in my experience for example um in like in working with writing instructors and by the way this is a good thing uh writing instructors oftentimes won't rely on quizzes or like timed assessments i guess i should say timed assessments are often things that aren't really gonna work very well for for many people right regardless of disability status you know um having that clock on you as you're trying to like complete your writing or finish your writing can be stressful, right? It can, it can cause like a lot of anxiety. For someone who has like um, anxiety or depression, OCD, I kind of I kind of identify with all those things as well. Um, 
oftentimes um, timed writing assessments can can just really be disastrous. Many writing instructors may um, don't like say that they don't use those things, but 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 that's not to say though that that there's not room for uh, a curriculum and pedagogy. Um, and Tara Wood, of course, has that that has that amazing article back in the C, uh, back in C's that where where she talks a lot about that. But essentially, um, the need for crypt time, I argue, goes beyond like just timed assessment because writing instructors will often say that, well, hey, you know, I don't use timed assessment. So I've already kind of passed that inaccessibility hurdle. But I think that there could and are still like avenues for like injustice to occur. And that's, I think that's something that um, that students with disabilities could typically could face in a, in a typical writing classroom context. I'm actually, I'm actually like a, like a big fan of um, portfolio assessment. Um, because I think that that's, that's like super helpful in helping students to, and if it's done right, that is, it's, it's helpful for, for students to um, kind of identify their own path of success and provide evidence for that path of success through like the various like writing artifacts that they've like put together in, in, in the classroom then, and then kind of compiled in a, in a, in a, in a, in a portfolio. When I was thinking about your question, um, I, immediately thought of um, students coming in to like self-advocate for themselves. Um, and I think that in a first year writing classroom, first year writing classrooms are often are often sort of themes of being this kind of like the threshold or the gateway for for entering the college or the university. Um, and in fact, like so like I tell this to with a lot of the grad students I work work with, for example, you know, your class is more than likely going to be your student's first college class like ever right <laughs> and so like to me um i think you know that holds like a lot of rhetorical agency for the instructor uh, being able to be like kind of like open to like their students needs but also to students like um hopefully being able to if they if it's possible to advocate for themselves how do you define invisible disabilities and do you mind talking about rhetorical conceptions to invisible disabilities invisible disabilities are those which are not immediately detectable so to speak my current research i've actually been um, interested in particular um, in um, caregivers and um, caregiving as a, um, a, a as a rhetorical construct now i argue that disability does carry a sense of rhetorical presence and i'm i want to take just a second to actually acknowledge my graduate student paul padilla but i'm i'm relying on terms like um, agency authority delivery, identification, invention, and memory. I borrow um, just a bit from Kenneth Burke's rhetoric of motives for making the case that disability can be identified internally and externally. You might even say, using Burkean terms, that disability is consubstantial, right, with shared interests between those who are disabled and those who are designing for the institution as a whole. So going back to what we had talked about earlier, Shane, accommodations are an external factor for students to succeed in the classroom, but more importantly, a motive for post-secondary institutions to improve upon themselves by delivering education that is universally accessible while keeping in mind the ways that marginalized groups operate within their boundary, even to the extent of recognizing disability while erasing it. Stephanie Kirschbaum's recent article, Signs of Disability, makes a case for how disability is shaped by a collective understanding of meanings 
which contribute to how we notice and erase it. I'm actually a big fan of um, of, of Kirschbaum's writing, and that and that particular argument I think um, speaks really well to what um, to what um, I want to think of um, in terms of um, invisible disability. In a nutshell, if one doesn't see a disability. It still exists, but may not likely to be reported. Uh, I'm particularly interested in um, in scholars like Margaret Price. Um, she's writing, doing some writing on it um, on on a disabled faculty study. On my own hypothesis, um, that invisibly disabled people might not be receiving as many accommodations due to the burden of proof being a challenge. That you have to always kind of show something. And that's kind of, I think, going back to the rhetorical constructs, constructs that I was thinking about earlier. Um, one can identify that a disability exists and is therefore in need of accommodations if it's like kind of more visible, right? But if it's not like seen, that's like immediately obvious, I guess I should say, then, um, then right, some more kind of challenges there. In no way, like, you know, um, I don't think disabled people should hit themselves against one another. I, def I definitely don't believe in that. Um, so, you know, the, the, um, the, the importance of having um, a disabled community of people representing themselves for themselves, right? Thinking about writing teachers who want to be accessible and accommodate all students, maybe are using a universal design for learning framework. And I'm also thinking about students with invisible disabilities that might not be reported to accommodation offices or disability resource centers. Can you talk a little bit about ethics and disclosure? This was one of the ones that had like some, I, I have to think about a little bit more because I'm thinking right off the bat that I'll, I'll give some, let me give some institutional context first. So the University of Arizona has has access consultants and more than um, at their disability resource center, our access consultants um, kind of act like the bridge between the um, the, the student like um, who needs um, accommodations with the, with the instructors, right? And access consultants, it's not like they they'll work directly with the instructors and with the students, but but they also have like um, a team of of other people, like st like staff members. So our DRC um, is um, so we use universal design for learning as as kind of like um, our um, theme for for providing um, access um, across the institution. I do think in some ways, I mean, there 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 is like some neoliberalism involved with that. I'll just say I'm I'm thinking back to uh, to Dolmage's chapter, Jay Dolmage's chapter on on academic ableism, like the one specifically related to universal design, which I absolutely love. I try to I quote from that whenever I can because you know because Dolmage is addressing right there is like a certain like neoliberal aspect to it because when you use when a university or an, an institution like relies upon this pedagogy that says that they're going to meet the needs of all the learners but at the same time um that also has potential to kind of erase identities right or or erase disabilities um all that to say okay so we need to go. So so we need to step back, step back for a minute, right? So how might teachers become more aware of students' disabilities? This is where I think, nonetheless, a really huge value in I mean to to know well to know about um, universal design for learning um, as something that they can use in their classrooms. Um, I guess I'll just say I take some issue with any instructor who like actively seeks out 
what their students like disabilities are because disclosure is like because disclosure is political but it's also personal i mean i've worked at I've, I've worked at you know quite a few institutions um i even after having gotten my phd back in 2011 when when, when i see instructors doing that like you know kind of like actively seeking like disclosure like with the, like without the student's consent really um it it, it it becomes kind of problematic and and i think hopefully like well my response is also kind of like based around like kind of like the ethics of disclosure, which, as you can tell, I'm probably I'm very interested um, in in ethics and academia. So I think that what I would suggest for for these teachers is that they just try to design their curricula in a way that's accessible for as many types of learning um, as much as possible. Instructors can and should be aware of the different ways that their students learn. And then they should hopefully try to um, create um, content that's 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 based around that. Your dissertation, communication crossroads, assertiveness pedagogy for college writers with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, is a study on college writers with ADHD and their perception on writing and on collaboration. Can you talk more about this research and how it has shaped your approach to teaching writing? Yeah, I can start to talk about that. Um, so, um, well, it started, well, I'd had an interest in that because I am diagnosed with ADHD, but also um, going back to um, disclosure, but um, but I'm also like um, somebody who was diagnosed like relatively later in life, right? Like um, I got this like when I was in my, when, when I was in my twenties, when, when I was a graduate student and, and this was, um, and this was at a time when um, it had gotten to, it gotten to a point where um, some of the things that like I knew that I had had already and were finally like diagnosed along with the ADHD, which were anxiety, uh, depression, um, OCD, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, it all kind of came together for me in, a, in kind of like, I mean, I guess I hate to say, but it was kind of like an enlightening moment for me that I actually don't hate to say it because it actually, it, it, it actually got me, like helped me get my degree when I finally like realized what was going on and I could, you know, conduct an, ac an academic study about it. But it's been a little while since I wrote my dissertation, um, but which was back in 2011, but it was on, um, it was on um, assertive pedagogy. When I was writing it, um, I used a method of, um, of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which uh, this particular one used writing as a means to go through um, some of the um, issues um, that kind of occur as a result of what I had discussed earlier, ADHD, anxiety, depression, OCD. But my dissertation though, um, tried to engage um, um, assertiveness therapy, which was this particular type of CBT um, as a means to actually engage um, in, in argumentation. So that actually came about because in my findings, so I did, I was, I did a qualitative study um, did lots of interviews um, with um, undergraduates who were enrolled, who were enrolled um, in writing courses, but were also diagnosed with with ADHD. Um, so um, a lot of kind of things came out of that. Um, things that things that some people might think that oh, that's kind of like because of the ADHD, right? So so you know um, everyone knows about like you know like distraction. Some of the things that like people told me about were like you know my mind is like on, I'm on a roller coaster and I'm thinking from like one thought to the next. I heard, I heard, I heard a lot. I remember hearing a lot of that um, in, in my data. Some people said if I wasn't on my medication, I wouldn't be like, be, be able to succeed. Whereas other people told me, well, I mean, whether either it's too much or just some at all kind of um, cuts my creativity. 
I'm giving you like direct quotes from, from some of the students I interviewed. So a lot of that though, um, also kind of boiled down to, to group communication and how the writers were perceived um, by other group members and also like how they like, um, like took on like, like certain group tasks. Those, so the subjects identified as like being like really um, interested in um, not only um, being able to um, sort of delegate tasks whenever they could, but also, um, but also do like large, um, brainstorming started that often started at the top fizzled through a little bit in in the middle but ultimately not all but for some of them um they were able to pull through towards at the very end however that could have like some detrimental effects like um on like kind of group projects and so all that to say um i thought i thought about ways of like of of this particular um like therapy in a sense of i was thinking to myself that hey um in order for me to make a functional, logical argument that persuades my readers to think of X in a certain way, I need to come up with a very specific plan, right? And so, and so they, so, so they did that with um, a particular piece of writing, and and I and I said to them, you know, you can try this in your writing class if you would like, but really, this is for you, anyways. So, so that's kind of like how 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 that sort of materialized since then though um i have been particularly interested in helping students and instructors learn writing instructors like learn more about or understand more about time management uh time management being like one area of executive functioning specifically affected by adhd time management um has has kind of stemmed from that team writing and and teamwork has kind of stemmed from that as well. So like to like write um, team projects. Um, um, and I've also kind of uh, worked a lot as we've, we've discussed um, with uh, Universal Design for Learning um, as well, which, and specifically because I think UDL focuses a lot on, on, on executive functioning that is um, affected by ADHD, um, time management, goal setting um, are the, are the ones that, 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 re that really stand out. And a lot of that I've came out of of my interests um, in, in ADHD. I have thought a lot more about ways that we can stop seeing disability um, from, well, so the medical model means that the individual is like responsible for it and society just has, it's, it's all good. But then on the other hand, the social model, of course, just means that, you know, um, society needs to account for the types of barriers, right? That disability is 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 actually constructed but long story short um i'm leaning towards the the latter method of that now so this is my last question i'd like to talk about multimodal literacies disability studies and portfolio assessment how does multimodality and portfolio assessment help you center disability studies in the writing classroom i think that multimodal multimodality recognizes that literacy is developed through a combination of sensories and sensory outputs. However, bearing that in mind, integrating video and audio is just the beginning. Accounting for and accepting different ways of assessment can actually assist in the um, ethical construct of things, right? I think one thing that multimodality, multimodal scholarship should definitely consider is the way that student work is in the way that it's submitted, I guess I should say, and the, and then and then assess. Well, I guess we can say it's all part of like the assessment process, right? If this if a student is able to um, produce work in somewhat of a different way that was than what was asked, and yet show evidence that they have met 
like student learning outcomes. Um, right. And, um, you know, and as we all know, like in, in writing in, in writing program administration, right, like um, success in programs is often measured like by the way that we can show that how our our students like in, in writing classes um, have kind of met these outcomes. Well, I like to think that evidence can be this goes back to my thoughts on portfolio assessment, a portfolio, a good portfolio assessment should include a highly reflective um, component to it, okay? Um, where the student has the right to go through all the, to collect and then analyze and reflect on all the different um, artifacts that they did in their writing classroom in such a way that shows that, that they have met the outcomes. Okay. The other thing with portfolio assessment is that it's not just that big portfolio that, that's at the very end of the class, but the other thing is that portfolio assessment to, for it to work out should have a reflective component like throughout the course. Okay. So students should have the opportunity to, um, to reflect on their writing like right from the start. And I think that multimodality um, has, has kind of like the way to do that. But I also think that students should be able to participate in ways so like i'm thinking to myself like like note taking right if a student with a disability for example like say someone with anxiety um is unable to um to like kind of vocally like participate in class um you know as and as we all know like in 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 western cultures right like you know where individual individualism is highly prized it might be hard for an instructor to assess like oh how did participation work from like my quiet person who didn't really like say much in class right and so one thing that i think that multimodality can really benefit from is recognizing that that there are students like who can participate in a variety of ways and in a variety of modes so like with note taking, so students can voluntarily um, produce notes, like class notes for the entire class, and then like post those, say, to like the learning management um, system, right? And that could be like their way of participation, right? Portfolios, I think, have 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 the ability to do that um, as well. Now, so bearing that in mind, so I'll go a little bit further now. Um, I'll say that instructors have an ethical obligation to make sure content delivery is accessible to a wide range of students, especially when using technology. An article I'm currently working on with a colleague um, is about um, online pre-designed courses. And I think online pre-designed courses have the potential to do just that. For example, loading scripted videos, you know, like TED Talks videos, for example, right, which always have like a script associated with them. Uh, using a table of contents and linking reminders, I think can be useful for um, time management as well as for goal setting. So I will, I'm, I'm going to end this response on, on just like a very practical note. Um, and that's on like um, captioning and scripts. Okay, if we make videos for, for classes, I think that we should caption them. Nowadays, um, captioning is, is, is a lot less overwhelming than it used to be, um, being that there are like some um, several auto captioning tools out there. Accessibility can be can be tough, right? Um, making your assignments as a writing instructor accessible can be tough. Um, but I will say though, that there are like some kind of low tech guidelines that instructors can follow, right? So they can keep the technology current learning curve low while also keeping accessibility at the forefront. Okay, for example, an instructor can write a script and read from it as a record, 
and then they can attach it to the video that they're giving to their students. Like videos should be pretty short. Um, they should be like about three to five minutes if possible. And that's not always the case. I think longer videos um, can be like preceded with like um, a table of contents. I think they can like, um, even if they're gonna be long, like um, instructors can do the students a favor by like giving like time markers, for example. It requires a little bit of planning during the recording. Um, it can it can be useful to talk through um, detailed detailed texts. Um, it can be definitely useful to use visuals, like for example, um, PowerPoint slides. So all that to say, um, I hope that answers um, that this particular question, though. Like wrapping back to to multimodal literacies, um, because I do think that multimodality really should keep um, accessibility. Um, at the forefront. And these are just some of the more practical ways, hopefully practical ways that I think instructors can can do just that. Thanks, Dev. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.